Hello, everyone, and welcome to Queen's Law Pro Bono Radio. I'm your host, Bobby, and I'm a first-year student here at Queen's Faculty of Law. Queen's Pro Bono Radio discusses interesting and off-center legal topics that aim to make legal discussions more accessible to you, the general public. We strive to stimulate interest and provide information while always being entertaining. This week's show is on the current prostitution laws in Canada and their constitutionality with a focus on issues unique to prostitution policy. As a law student, I have found that I often get asked a seemingly simple question. Is prostitution legal in Canada? In trying to provide a simple and easily digestible answer, I've come to realize how complex the laws surrounding prostitution in Canada truly are and how little little the general public understands them in practice. The topic of prostitution law and policy in Canada is therefore not only controversial, but quite complicated. Or, as our special guest of today's podcast would put it, this topic poses a wicked problem. It is with great pleasure and honor that I welcome our special guest to help us tackle this difficult issue, Professor Deborah Hawk. She's currently an assistant professor at Queen's Law, where she teaches criminal law, constitutional law, and insolvency restructuring. Professor Hawk's research and publication focus on how law and policy in Canada contend with the different interests of individuals and groups in a diverse society. Her thesis, entitled The Wicked Problem of Prostitution and Sex Work Policy in Canada, considered the debate over Canada's current prostitution policy and criminal prostitution laws as a conflict between and among stakeholders prioritizing different and at times divergent interests. Her work also explores how legal decision makers, including judges and policymakers, make difficult choices between and among these differing individuals and groups in a liberal and constitutional legal context. Drawing on 20 years of practice experience, Professor Hawk approaches her research through the conceptual and analytical lens of interest-focused legal problem solving. An example of the study of law in context she calls thinking like a practicing lawyer. Professor Hawk, thank you so much for joining us. You have a wealth of expertise on this topic and I'm so excited to be in discussion with you here today. Thank you, Bobby, so much for inviting me to be with you today. I hope that I am able to shed some light on this complex topic for your listeners. Thank you. Yeah. So let's just jump right into it. So to start off, any discussion of prostitution surrounds a debate not only over the appropriate role of the state and criminal law, but a discussion of the commercial exchange of sex also centers on a dichotomy over the choice of the term that is even used to describe this activity. So first of all, before we dive deeper into this conversation, I think it's important to stop and recognize that the different terms sex work and prostitution are often used interchangeably, despite having very different connotations. As you point to in your article, Redefining Prostitution and Sex Work, Conceptual Clarity for Legal Thinking, there's actually an important difference between the two terms. Can you tell us what each of these terms signals, specifically on Why is it so important to understand the implications of language used in framing any conversations surrounding this activity? Well, I think the starting point in thinking about the conceptual difference between prostitution and sex work is that I'm a legal thinker and your listeners are legal thinkers and words matter to us. And the activity of prostitution, that is the exchange of sexual services for consideration, is an activity that has been subject to some form of criminal sanction in Canada for a very long time. And that activity is simply the exchange of one thing for another. That is the exchange of sexual services for consideration. 
And that activity can take place in a context that involves third-party coercion or trafficking. It can take place in a context where people engage by choice. And then it can also take place in a muddier middle space where people engage in the activity through lack of choice, if you will. When we talk about sex work or when people talk about sex work, they are generally only talking about activities within the broader commercial sex industry that occur when people engage by choice. So when we talk about sex work, there are two, I think, conceptual distinctions between it and the activity of prostitution that matter. The first is that sex work is generally used as a term to describe prostitution when engaged in by choice. And the second is that sex work is also often used to describe activities in the broader sex industry that would not constitute prostitution under our laws in Canada. So there we're thinking about things like pornography uh, or exotic dancing or webcamming. So those activities are often described as examples of sex work, but they wouldn't be examples of prostitution under our existing laws. So recognizing that conceptual distinction matters to some of the things I think we're gonna talk about later on in the program in this way. The law applies to prostitution or the exchange of sexual services for consideration. The law currently draws no distinction between instances where there's trafficking and instances where there's choice or that middle ground. Constitutional challenges to those laws rest on a claim that they violate sex workers' rights. That is that they violate the rights of those people engaging in prostitution who do so by choice or on consent. So I'll leave it there for now and let you get on with your questions. And I'm sure we're going to come back to that. Yeah. So kind of uh, following up on that theme, how do you think this dichotomy, you've touched on it, but what are the implications for the different interest groups? So um, prostitution policy is made in a policy space where there is a wide range of potential policy stakeholders. And those policy stakeholders uh, ask different things of the state and they claim different interests, sometimes based on different experiences. Sex workers, so those individuals who voluntarily engage in the commercial exchange of sex are one stakeholder group, but they're not the only stakeholder group that was in the contemplation of parliament in enacting Canada's current policy and legislative approach to prostitution or the commercial exchange of sex. Other stakeholder groups in the question of how we regulate the commercial exchange of sex may involve uh, people who have been trafficked into the commercial sex industry, uh, people who have exited from the commercial sex industry who describe their experiences in prostitution as inherently harmful to them. Also, we're looking at the communities where prostitution takes place. And we're also looking at stakeholders in the wider society, for example, women and girls. And we're thinking about how a legal commercial market for sex might impact the equality interests of women and girls in society. So all of those stakeholders and stakeholder groups claim an interest in how we regulate the commercial exchange of sex. They were all considered by parliament in enacting the current policy approach and laws. And so that conceptual distinction between prostitution and sex work comes back in because all of those interest groups claim an interest in how we deal with prostitution or the commercial exchange of sex. Sex workers are one of the stakeholder groups in that overall policy conversation. And I would say that at that point, they may be 
the most important stakeholder group. They are certainly a very important stakeholder group, but they're not the only stakeholder group. Right, and one of the things that you touched on in your article that I found fascinating was the implications of this dichotomy in research on um, understanding the exchange of sexual services. Can you touch on that a bit? Sure. Um, so social science research about the commercial exchange of sex in Canada is almost exclusively focused on the experiences of adults who engage in the commercial sex industry by choice. So we have very little research that tells us very much about individuals who participate in the commercial sex market through third-party coercion or trafficking, or specifically about individuals who participate in that market through the, in the absence of choice. We also have almost no empirical research about people who have exited the commercial sex industry. And when researchers focus on continuing adult sex workers in their research, it influences the questions that they ask, it obviously influences who they ask, and it influences what they make of their research findings because it's certainly been my experience that the social scientists in Canada who are researching about sex work and with sex workers are really most interested in improving the conditions in which sex work takes place. And so they're not interested in questioning whether sex work or prostitution should take place, but rather what are the best conditions for those people who are participating in that market? And that's a different question and arguably a policy question. Right, okay. And jumping off of that theme, I wanna talk about the blurry line between regulation and criminalization. So prior to 2013, it was not directly illegal to buy or sell sexual acts in Canada. However, criminal laws curtailed how the commercial exchange of sex could be conducted and made almost every activity related to prostitution illegal. As we've already started to discuss, the word prostitution signals a criminality that is not worthy of protection, which only leaves workers more open to exploitation. In fact, research has shown that the murder rate for sex workers could be anywhere from 60 to 120 times that of adult women in the general Canadian population. So can you differentiate between regulation and criminalization for us? We've never had a regulated commercial sex industry in Canada. So there are uh, four, broadly speaking, four policy approaches to the commercial exchange of sex. Uh, there is pro prohibition where both buying and selling are prohibited or criminalized. There is regulation where prostitution is not subject to criminal sanctions, but the activity is regulated. So there may be rules around um, the locations, you may need to have certain zoning rules, you may need to have a license to operate your business, etc. So those kinds of regulated models are, are ones that we think of in, in countries like um, the Netherlands or Germany, for example. Then we can have decriminalization, which is simply the removal of all criminal sanctions specifically applicable to prostitution and no prostitution-specific regulations. So prostitution or sex work would then be treated the same way as other jobs in the, in the world. So, um, and then the final example of a policy approach is the one that Canada chose, which is called uh, alternatively an abolitionist approach or a Nordic model, or more recently, an equality model. And I can tell you a little bit more about that model uh, when we get to it, but 
prior to 2013 and the Bedford decision, uh, there were criminal laws that applied to uh, criminalize certain activities in the commercial sex market, but the activity of exchanging sexual services for consideration was not itself criminalized. And so that activity was legal, although there were criminal prohibitions around how you could engage in that activity. Of those four potential policy approaches, there are really only two that people are advocating for or have advocated for recently in Canada. The first is that abolitionist approach that we currently have, which aims to reduce or eliminate the market for sexual services itself. And that model is premised on the idea that the commercial exchange itself of, of sex is itself uh, inherently harmful, that there is, is something harmful about the commercial exchange of sex itself that means that we should try to constrain the market as much as possible. It's also premised on an idea that there is a significant risk of violence in the commercial sex market that can't be reduced to acceptable levels. So that's the premise or basis for the model that we currently have. Now, those who advocate uh, and for sex workers' rights would have Canada implement a decriminalized model, really, which, which means just that Canada repeal all prostitution-specific criminal laws as they relate to adults. Um, and New Zealand is the country that's most often pointed to as an example of a decriminalized model. Uh, to my knowledge, New Zealand remains the only country that has countrywide uh, decriminalized sex work or the commercial exchange of sex. By contrast, the model that we currently have, the abolitionist model started in 1999 in Sweden. It's often referred to as a Nordic model. Um, there have been a number of countries that have adopted that model. It does appear to be the one uh, that is, is most commonly adopted now, uh, most recently by Israel, but also by Ireland, Northern Ireland, France, and other Nordic countries aside from Sweden. So. Um, those are the two models that people advocate for in Canada. What I think the Conservative government, Stephen Harper, tried to do with the model that we have in Canada now is to affect some kind of balance um, between and among stakeholder interests. Now, whether you agree that they did it for the right reasons or whether you agree that they were effective in striking a balance, those are separate questions. But I do think that they tried to in the context of the Canadian constitution and charter, and in the context of the Bedford decision, construct a legislative model that would function in Canada. Right, okay, so we know where we are now, but I just wanna back up for our listeners and talk about what is Bedford and what Bedford did for Canada. So the indirect criminalization of sex work by these laws prior to 2013 was said by many activists to have dangerous implications for sex workers as it prevented workers from being able to take the appropriate safety precautions and put them into situations where the potential for exploitation was heightened. This issue of dangerousness was addressed in the 2013 landmark case of Canada and Bedford, commonly referred to as the Bedford case. This decision is an important historical decision from the Supreme Court of Canada on the Canadian law of sex work as this de decision changed the landscape 
in which sex workers in Canada work. The case was initiated in 2007 by three Ontario sex workers themselves, Terry Jean Bedford, Amy Lobovowicz, and Valerie Scott. The applicants asked the court to strike down three provisions of the criminal code because they violated sex workers' constitutional right to security of the person under Section 7. These provisions included Section 210, keeping or being found in a body house, Section 212.1, J, subsection J, living on the avails of prostitution, and Section 213.1, sub C, communicating in public for the purpose of prostitution. As we've discussed, these sections of the criminal code do not, did not make sex work itself illegal, but criminalized activities surrounding sex work, which many advocates argued made it more dangerous for sex workers to work in, as it created an underground world in which sex workers were more vulnerable to exploitation. The applicants argued that the laws should afford sex workers with the right to have sex work as safe as possible and not prevent sex workers from working in safe environments. Before we dive deeper into the decision of this case and its implications, can you tell us a bit more about the pre-Bedford landscape and sex work laws and why this call to action was seen as so transformational? Right, so the pre-Bedford landscape involved laws that had historically responded to nuisance. So all of the laws, the criminal laws that we have had over time I shouldn't say all, most of the criminal laws that we have had over time in Canada that responded to the commercial exchange of sex had as their aim reducing the nuisance experienced by members of the community as a result of people engaging in prostitution. So there was very little concern for the people who engaged in prostitution themselves, for their safety interests, um, for their overall well-being. The laws aim to reduce the nuisances associated with prostitution. And the three laws that were challenged in Bedford really uh, very specifically aimed to reduce the nuisances associated with prostitution in ways that limited the safety enhancing measures that people engaged in prostitution could take. And therefore, as the court found in that case, increased their risks in a way that the court found violated their right to security of the person under section seven of the charter, because it made it more difficult or dangerous for them to engage in what was then a risky but legal activity. So what happened then is that the constitutional challenge to those laws was successful. And there was a real hope amongst those, amongst sex workers and those who advocate for their interests that this would mean that the commercial exchange of sex would be decriminalized in Canada. But as we know, that isn't what happened. Um, so what happened is that the Supreme Court in Bedford gave Parliament 12 months to decide how to respond. So they suspended the declaration of invalidity of the then existing laws to give Parliament time to respond. They noted that few countries leave prostitution entirely unregulated, and they noted that it would be of some concern to Canadians to go immediately uh, from a situation where there was some laws applicable to prostitution to a situation where there were none. Um, and in that intervening time period of 12 months, um, the government engaged in consultations, heard evidence from a wide range of stakeholders, and ultimately decided 
to change the policy approach to the commercial exchange of sex in Canada to the one that we currently have. So you mentioned that there was consultation after Bedford. Did that consultation receive any evidence about the dangerous and unsafe working conditions that sex workers were exposed to? There was a significant consultation, and I think there may have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 um, people who gave evidence before the parliamentary committee, and that definitely included um, sex workers and organizations that work on behalf of and with sex workers. Yes, it is fantastic to see the involvement of sex workers in this decision. However, is there anything that you think this decision failed to capture? Uh, if we're um, the decision in Bedford or the decision to enact the new legislative framework? Yes, the decision in Bedford. Yeah, so um, I think there are a few things about the Bedford decision that are noteworthy, um, particularly because they're things that courts considering the new legislation will probably address differently. So the first is that the application judge in Bedford uh, said that evidence about the experiences of people who have experienced uh, human trafficking was not relevant in the case before the court then. In enacting the new laws, Parliament clearly connected the existence of a commercial sex market and the existence of human trafficking. So Parliament specifically recognized that how we deal with the commercial sex market impacts um, the potential for human trafficking. And so Evidence about human trafficking wasn't relevant in Bedford. It will be relevant in um, the, the constitutional challenge to the new laws. Um, similarly, it, there's a small thing that I noticed in Bedford, which um, I think is a bit concerning. The application judge found that there were measures that could reduce the risk of experiencing violence while engaging in sex work. Now, the application judge did not say that those things would reduce the risk of experiencing violence. And the application judge did not consider whether and how those measures might be employed differently by differently situated sex workers. So whether everyone would e be equally able to reduce their risk of experiencing violence while employing those measures. What I've always found kind of interesting is that by the time that case gets to the Supreme Court of Canada, the Supreme Court in the Bedford decision says those measures would reduce the risk of violence. And I'm not aware of any social science evidence that establishes that if you take certain measures, the risk of violence associated with sex work will reduce. Because it, what you're really talking about is the risk of male violence. And whether one is able to predict the possibility of male violence and what measures one could take to reduce the risk of experiencing male violence um, are really questions that we we know there aren't firm answers to. That is that, that it isn't really possible with any degree of certainty to reduce or eliminate the risk of male violence generally or specifically in the context of the commercial sex exchange. Um, so those are two things that I think um, weren't really enough of the conversation in Bedford and will be 
in the new legal context. There are other things that have changed um, that will matter a lot to the constitutionality of the new laws. Uh, the first being that prostitution is now unlawful, which I know we're going to get to. Um, and the other that the goals of these new laws are different than the goals of the old laws considered in Bedford. That is, these laws don't aim to reduce the nuisance experienced by the community uh, outside of those participants in the commercial sex exchange. The new laws really aim to reduce or eliminate the market for sexual services itself. Um, and we can talk more about that. Right, those are very different things. So let's jump into the laws that we have today. So as you touched on, in 2014, Parliament enacted the Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act, also known as the PCEPA, which sought to abolish prostitution by ending demand through criminalizing buyers, those who obtain the services, and other activities that establish and promote a market for sexual services. In other words, just one year after this landmark Bedford decision, four new criminal provisions were enacted by the PCEPA which made prostitution illegal in Canada as it is a criminal offense every time sexual services are exchanged for consideration. As you point out in your article, the legislative scheme aims to denounce and deter any market of this exchange of sexual services on the underlying rationale that prostitution is a form of sexual exploitation that is harmful disproportionately to women and girls affected by it, as well as society at large. So can you tell us what are these new four provisions and what do they mean for Canadians? Right, so uh, there are currently, in fact, six criminal provisions that apply to the commercial exchange of sex. Two that remain in section 213 of the criminal code, which uh, I think almost everyone agrees should be repealed. And then the four brand new provisions, um, which are, uh, situated in the criminal code under the heading of commodification of sexual activity. So section 286.1 of the code makes it an offense to obtain sexual services for consideration. Now this is the offense that makes prostitution unlawful for the first time in Canada. So every time sexual services are exchanged for consideration, a criminal offense occurs. Now I wanna correct what I think is a little bit of a misapprehension about this offense. It is often said that selling is decriminalized but buying is criminalized. And that's not exactly right because we have uh, party offense provisions in Canada that mean that the seller is aiding and abetting the commission of the 286.1 offense every time sexual services are exchanged for consideration. So they could actually be prosecuted as a party to the offense. To ensure that that did not happen, Parliament gave them immunity from prosecution under 286.5 of the criminal code, but that does not mean that selling is legal. So Parliament could have said it is not an offense to provide sexual services for consideration. That's not what they said. They said it's an offense to obtain sexual services for consideration. Sellers are parties to that offense by aiding and abetting it, but they're not gonna be prosecuted under because they have immunity from prosecution. And that's quite different. And that was intentional, I believe, on the part of the drafts persons to ensure that 
we were able to say that the activity itself is now unlawful, which is different from the situation in Bedford. The next offense is 286.2, which is the material benefit offense, which is that everyone who receives a financial or other material benefit, knowing that it is obtained by or derived directly or indirectly from the commission of a 286.1 offense, is guilty of an offense themselves. Now, there are exceptions to this offense that permit sex workers to employ the very measures found in Bedford to have the potential to reduce their risk of experiencing violence. So there's a carve out from that offense to permit sex workers to, for example, hire bodyguards or to, for example, work together with other sex workers in certain conditions. The third offense is the procuring offense. So you can't procure someone else to provide sexual services for consideration. And finally, we have 286.4, which is the advertising offense, so that you cannot knowingly advertise an offer to provide sexual services for consideration. And all of that is structured around the idea of reducing or eliminating to the greatest extent possible the commercial sex market so that the greatest number of people avoid being exposed to its harms. Right. And do you think that this is a dramatic shift from Bedford? And do you think that this is what the judges in the Supreme Court in Bedford were intending? Right. So two different questions. Uh, yes, this is a dramatic shift. It's a big shift for Canada. Um, and I, I should say something about prostitution policy generally. People who research around uh, prostitution policy suggest that prostitution policy really doesn't change easily, that prostitution policies change because of a push. And in Canada, the push came with Bedford. So the government was then pushed into a situation of considering how they were going to respond to prostitution because the way that uh, Canada had historically responded was no longer on the table as a result of Bedford. But to your second question, do I think that this is what the judges in Bedford had in mind? Uh, I think we need to be careful about what the judge's job is. And the judges in Bedford were very careful in clarifying that it wasn't their job to say what kind of policy approach or laws parliament should choose, but rather to assess whether the laws then in place that, that an earlier parliament had chosen passed constitutional muster. And so that's the same question that judges who've been asked to evaluate the constitutionality of the new offenses have had to contend with. Do these new laws pass constitutional muster? Um, so really uh, in Bedford, the Supreme Court was clear in saying that policy is a matter for parliament. It's not our job to tell parliament how to respond to this issue. Right, a very important point. So as you pointed to, the constitutionality of these provisions has been questioned. It's been suggested that the criminal provisions enacted by the PCEPA may violate sections 2 sub B, section 2 sub D, section 11, section 7, and section 15 of the Charter. There have been two recent constitutional challenges to some of these provisions already in criminal proceedings at the Ontario Superior Court level where the constitutionality of these laws were upheld. 
In 2017, the Pivot Legal Society, a Canadian organization committed to the decriminalization of adult sex work, released a report calling for the repeal of these provisions, arguing that the ban on purchasing impacts sex workers' safety by putting them at an increased risk of danger and perpetuates harmful stereotypes for sex workers. Ultimately, what do you think are going to be the key issues that the Supreme Court of Canada is going to contend with in deciding if these current laws are in fact constitutional? So um, things have happened quickly in this space. And so I should update your listeners that there have now, the, the question of the constitutionality of at least some of the new criminal offenses enacted with PSIPA has been considered in eight different cases now. And uh, the most important of those decisions is one of the Ontario Court of Appeal, which has now upheld the constitutionality of the material benefit offense, the procuring offense, and the advertising offense. Until last month, no court in Canada had considered the constitutionality of the obtaining offense. In a decision released last month, the Crown and Williams the Ontario Superior Court of Justice upheld the constitutionality of Section 286.1, which is really the centerpiece of the legislative scheme. So we now have decisions upholding all of the um, new offenses. There were two decisions of lower courts in Ontario and one decision of the Alberta Court of Queen's Bunch where courts found those laws unconstitutional but I think in light of the Ontario Court of Appeal decision, um, we're now in a situation where uh, it looks more likely that the laws uh, may be found constitutional than it may have originally. Um, so your question was, what do I think is really going to be at issue in these cases? Um, there is currently a constitutional challenge to all six of the criminal offenses applicable to adult prostitution in Canada that was commenced by the Canadian Alliance for Sex Work Law Reform uh, and a group of individuals. And that case was heard in the fall and is under reserve. And in that case, it was argued that the new offenses infringed sections 2B, 2D, 7, and 15 of the charter. There were, I believe, 17 interveners in that case who brought to the court's attention uh, arguments and matters that were not necessarily part of the argument of the applicants in that case or of the respondents, Attorney General for Canada and Attorney General for Ontario. What it really involves, I mean, there, there are so many things at issue in the case, but the first is what the court's going to make of this change in context from an unlawful to a lawful context. Uh, the second is what the court makes of the new legislative objectives. So these new laws have different and arguably more important objectives than the laws that were considered in Bedford. Um, and so the court's going to have to figure out what that means. But beyond that, as a sort of bigger overarching issue, I think that the court is going to have to contend with different ideas about what dignity and equality require. Because parties and interveners on both sides argue both that the laws infringe the dignity and equality rights and interests of sex workers and 
that the laws promote the dignity and equality interests of women and girls in Canadian society and society more broadly. So the court's going to have to figure out how to balance or make sense of those competing claims about ultimately what dignity and equality look like. Okay, very interesting. And as we've explored, the topic of the legality and constitutionality of sex work in Canada is very complex and involves many moving pieces and stakeholders. What do you think is the most important thing to keep in mind when framing discussions about the exchange for sexual services for consideration in a meaningful way as to not lose sight of these complexities? Well, I think the first thing is the prompt that started the conversation today, which is that there's a shift in the legality of prostitution. So the commercial exchange of sexual services for consideration is now unlawful in Canada. And so an understanding of why that's the case uh, and an understanding that that is the circumstance has to be part of our legal discussions. The second is that it is often suggested that these laws set out to improve safety for people engaging in sex work and that they fail to do that. And I think it's important to recognize that that's not what the laws themselves set out to do. That is the overall legislative scheme that we've pursued in Canada isn't about making sex work safer. It's about reducing the size of the market to the greatest extent possible so fewer people are exposed to the risks associated with sex worker prostitution. There are immunity, there's an immunity from prosecution and exceptions that permit sex workers to take particular measures with the potential to reduce their risks, but that's just really to permit them to take those measures found in Bedford to have the potential to reduce risks. They don't aim to improve the overall situation of sex workers. So those are really important things to think about. The final thing I'd leave with legal listeners is that there's a big difference between whether laws are constitutionally permissible and whether they're the right policy choice. And what you think the right policy choice is in this space is really about which experiences or interests or rights or values you would prioritize in the policy process. Different people take different views on that, and there is no consensus over that question. And so that's why this is, as you noted at the beginning of the show, what's called a wicked problem, one where there isn't really an easy answer that satisfies all of or even most of the stakeholder interests. Right. I think that's a really important distinction to make and something I think a lot of the general public doesn't differentiate is the difference between constitutionality and policy. So I thank you for making that point. One thing I just want to circle back to to clarify for our listeners is when you say that it's unlawful, do you mean it's criminal? Uh, I do. I mean that it is a criminal offense to obtain sexual services for consideration. So every time sexual services are exchanged for consideration, uh, a criminal offense hypothetically or notionally is taking place. Uh, whether someone is actually charged is a separate question, but yes. Okay. And as a researcher or an academic in this area, 
where do you think that the research on sex work and prostitution is headed? That's also a very interesting question. Um, I think that there has historically been a move in the research to separate sex work or voluntary prostitution from coerced or trafficking. Um, and I think that that, what I'm seeing is a bit of a shift there um, to an acknowledgement that prostitution can occur in both contexts, but I'm seeing a shift towards suggesting that there isn't maybe as much trafficking as we think there is and or that our current responses to trafficking are ineffective and overly carceral. Um, and I think that uh, that's what I'm seeing in terms of the social science research, um, that shift. But I would quickly say that I think everyone in this area of research recognizes that there's a lot we can't know through social science methods about the commercial exchange of sex. We can't accurately know the size of the market. We can't accurately know how much of the market is chosen and how much of the market is coerced. Um, those are things that really, because of how hidden the commercial sex market is, um, they can't be known through social science methods. And so that makes it all the more difficult to really use what we, what we think of as evidence uh, in promoting a particular policy response, or even arguably in proving to courts causal connections between laws and harms. Um, so I see that happening. So since 2014, when Parliament enacted the Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act, has the government reviewed the legislation since then? It's interesting that you asked that, uh, Bobby. It was actually included as Section 45 of the Act when it was enacted that there would be a comprehensive review of the provisions and operation of the Act within five years. That did not happen within five years. That review did, however, happen um, last year in 2022. And the House Standing Committee on Justice and Human Rights allocated eight meetings to hearing witnesses, and they received 72 briefs from individuals expressing all of the wide-ranging views that we've discussed in the course of today's um, interview. And so they released a report that might be interesting for your listeners to look at. Um, and that report was released in June of 2022. And in it, the uh, committee made a series of recommendations. Now, notably, they did not recommend repealing or changing the laws. So consistent with something that I have said earlier, it really is unlikely that Canada is going to change the laws again unless they are pushed in some way. And the lack of consensus we see more broadly in society around this topic was reflected in the report. So we have uh, a parliamentary report, which is on behalf of the committee itself, that makes certain recommendations. Um, and then we have a dissenting report from the Conservative members on that committee who really proposed the exact opposite. 
And then we have another report from the NDP members of the committee who suggests that the original report of, of the liberal members of the committee didn't go far enough. So um, that might be a place for readers and listeners to start if they wanna take a look at what's been considered. I think what a couple of interesting things uh, from that report, first of all, the committee decided that while many of the witnesses and briefs had discussed human trafficking, they were only gonna focus their study on voluntary sex work by adults. And in doing that, they really constrained their consideration to the same consideration as the court had in Bedford in a context where the new laws were specifically enacted cognizant of the link between the commercial sex market and human trafficking. So I think that, that they, in my view, unduly narrowed um, their consideration to voluntary sex work. And they accepted as a premise that you can separate voluntary sex work from human trafficking. And certainly many researchers in this space suggest that it's not possible to draw a bright line between human trafficking and sex work and treat them differently in law. And to date for the current legislative scheme here uh, reflects a decision not to try to separate those two things out. So I think that that's, that's an interesting piece of the puzzle that we haven't talked a lot about yet. I should tell you, I could tell you also that their number one recommendation was that the government assure that prior to any amendments to the law, or the development of any related programs or policies, extensive consultation be undertaken. I mean, what's interesting about that is that throughout there has been extensive consultation. The problem is that when there's a lack of consensus and when those who are being consulted say very different things, whatever the government does reflects a choice as between and among those interests um, and not everyone's interests will be satisfied. Um, and so in any event, what they've recommended is, is more uh, consultation be undertaken before anything is done. There's another thing that I didn't touch on so far that I think is important. The Nordic model of policy that we have adopted in Canada usually is understood to have three parts. Criminal laws that target purchase or obtaining sexual services for consideration, social programs funded to assist people to transition out of the commercial exchange of sex, and public interest campaigns aimed at educating the general public about both the laws, but also, and more importantly, the reason for having the laws, and in particular, the connection between the laws and the goal of gender equality. Now, in Canada, we enacted the criminal laws, but they are not being consistently or uniformly enforced across the country. We funded, or at least the Conservative government then in power funded, to some extent, programs to assist people transitioning out of the commercial exchange of sex at the time the laws were enacted. There have been some issues around accessing that funding and about securing funding when the government changed. So programs have not been as robustly funded with a specific aim of assisting people to exit prostitution as they might have been. And there's been almost no 
campaign to educate the public about what the laws now are and about why we have them and about more broadly why a legal commercial sex industry may be inconsistent with the goals of a gender equal society. So those things really would have to be improved if the current policy approach had a prospect of being successful. Right, and on that point of education, do you find that a lot of just the general public when you're having discussions about these sex work in, in general, do you find that there, there are a lot of misconceptions? Yes, in fact, I do. Um, I think many people come to conversations around this topic with a decision already made about how they are going to understand the topic and what they think about it. Um, and what I've come to realize is that it is, as you've mentioned, complex, but that people experience the commercial sex industry in such wide ranging ways that to try to treat it as if it were one thing is a, is a, is a big problem. Okay, that's very interesting. So would you say that there is a tension sometimes between the social science research and the, the legal framing of this issue? Um, I wouldn't call it a tension. I, I might call it a disconnect. I think that what social scientists research and what the law wants or needs to know can sometimes be different. So for example, social scientists who are interested in knowing about the effects of current criminal laws interview people about how they behave in response to those laws. But some of the findings are premised on the interviewees having a misunderstanding of what the law actually is or what the law does or how it functions. And so then we have a disconnect because the researchers say, here's the effect of the law. And that research about the effect of the law is premised on an imprecise or in fact wrong um, understanding of the law. And so there's, there's a real potential for there to be a disconnect between what legal thinkers or uh, judges might want to know and what social science evidence has in fact established or has in fact explored. Right, and that circles us back right to the beginning of our discussion where I relate how complicated it actually is to answer the question, is prostitution legal in Canada? So in practice, what is one thing about your research that you believe would really surprise the general public to learn? Well, I think it's something that I mentioned earlier. I think it would surprise people to learn that these laws don't aim to make sex work safer. I think that most people think that the goal of the laws is to improve the situation of sex workers uh, in the face of the decision in Bedford. And that's really not what these laws set out to do. Right. Okay, and before we conclude, I would really like to recommend to our listeners that wish to learn more about the topic to check out Professor Hawk's new article, The Case of the Reasonable Hypothetical Sex Worker of the Alberta Law Review, published in 2022, last year. And Professor Hawk, do you have any other recommendations for our listeners? There is a, there's, there's a fair bit of research out there 
uh, about prostitution and sex work. And I would just encourage listeners to be uh, aware when they're reviewing what they're reading uh, about whose experiences aren't reflected or in what they're reading, uh, which issues or rights aren't really reflected in what they're reading and to sort of try to gather up as much information about the widest possible range of experiences, interests, rights, or values associated with this topic. Um, for, my, for my own part, uh, I have another article forthcoming in the Supreme Court Law Review that looks specifically at the intersection of sections seven and section one of the charter and how those different experiences, interests, rights, and values might play into the question of constitutionality at the intersection of section seven and section one. Um, and I am also working on a manuscript, although uh, that won't be available, I'm sure, for, for some time to come. Right, thank you so much. Professor Hawk, I really wanna thank you for coming on today and providing us with your wealth of expertise. And thank you for your research, because I know this can be a very difficult area to both research and talk about. So I really thank you for this opportunity and sharing everything that you know with us today. Well, thank you, Bobby, so much for uh, inviting me to be on the program and uh, best of luck with your future episodes. And before we end the show, we would like to say that the views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, hosts, or the Queen's University Faculty of Law. This podcast does not contain any legal advice. Pro Bono Students Canada is a student organization. This podcast was prepared with the assistance of PBSC Queen's Law student volunteers. PBSC students are not lawyers and they are not authorized to provide legal advice. The podcast contains general discussion of certain legal and related issues only. If you require legal advice, please consult with a lawyer. For more Pro Bono Radio, check us out at probonoradio.com or on most podcasting platforms and broadcasting weekly on CFRC 101.9 FM, Kingston's only campus and community radio station. Today's show was produced and hosted by Bobby Alvernance with special guest Deborah Hawk. If you like this interview, you can find more on Queen's Pro Bono Radio website. <laughs>